Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Unsavory, where true crime meets food. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And today we have a super important and super relevant episode for you. Mm -hmm. So in light of recent events in Ukraine, we've decided to put the episode that we initially had planned on hold and rather discuss some of the backstory of the devastating invasion of Russian troops on Ukrainian soil. And you might be wondering what this has to do with food. And I promise you, it has a lot to do with food. Oh, it does. More than you might think. Honestly, everything relates back to food. So first off, Sarah is going to discuss exactly what war sanctions are and how they can impact the food system. Then I'm going to cover the devastating famine that took the lives of an estimated 3.5 to 12 million Ukrainians. And that's the famine of Holodomor. And the unfortunate twist is that the famine has historically been considered a man-made famine. So we hope this episode gives you some historical context to the current conflict and let us know what you think. Yeah, when you suggested this topic, I'm a little like embarrassed to say that I looked it up and I honestly hadn't heard of it before. Mm -hmm. And like that death toll you just mentioned, 3.5 to 12 million Ukrainians is so devastating. 
So I'm I'm shocked I knew so little about it. And I wouldn't say I'm excited for this episode because I know it's going to be so terrible, but I am really interested to learn more about a really dark part of human history. Yeah. Like when food is used as a weapon, I feel like such awful things happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like on that note, there we should just give a brief trigger warning because there will be discussion of death by starvation, children and instances of cannibalism. So by the time this episode airs, the current status of things in Ukraine might have changed. So keep that in mind. And we're currently recording this on March 5th, 2022. 7.05 p.m. 7.05 p.m. The information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a physician or registered dietitian in your area. If you have a history of disordered eating, be advised that nutrition details will be discussed and take the steps you need to protect your recovery journey. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes on our website, unsavorypodcast.com. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through the Patreon link in our bio. If you could rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so we're starting off with a topic that I never thought I would cover on this podcast, but it's one that can have a massive impact on the food system agriculture industry, and food security overall. And I'm talking about sanctions. Huge, huge, huge shout out to my sources here, because in all honesty, I barely knew what a sanction was before starting this research. So thank you, Government of Canada websites and (laughs) many other sources that I used, which will, as always, be listed in our show notes. So what exactly is a sanction? Sanctions are a policy tool that applies economic penalties or restrictions from one state, country, group, or individual against a targeted state, country, group, or individual with the goal of causing economic damage. Sanctions can be unilateral, so one state applying restrictions directly against another, or collective For example, the entire EU and Western nations cooperating to impose sanctions on a single country like Russia. Sanctions are most often used to help settle ongoing conflicts by using non-military means. So they can be used to help deter nuclear proliferation, support or restore international peace and security, 
protect human rights, and hinder terrorism. They're kind of like when you're a kid and you get in trouble and your parents withhold your allowance, but on the biggest possible scale. There are various types of sanctions, including restricting or prohibiting trade or financial activities between your country and the target country. There can be sanctions that involve import and export restrictions, which hinder the economy of the targeted country by basically blocking the buying, selling, and shipping of goods to or from that country. There are also financial prohibitions that block financial transactions with the targeted entity, so typically a country. There are technical assistance prohibitions, which aim at blocking the sharing of technical data, training, or other technical assistance. And these sanctions in particular can have a widespread impact on everyone in the country. So that might look like blocking the use of certain technologies that are really pervasive. We'll Mm -hmm. talk about that more in a second. And sanctions can also impact the morale and spirit of a country through things like travel bans or even preventing a country's athletes from competing in international events. So there's many types and almost all of those types of sanctions that I just mentioned are currently implemented against Russia in an attempt to impact Russia's ability to fund their ongoing invasion of Ukraine and ensure that Russia experiences economic consequences for Putin's actions. The U.S., Canada, Australia, and the European Union have implemented sweeping coordinated economic sanctions that are already hugely impacting the Russian economy, including the freezing of assets of powerful individuals, including Putin, which I'm sure he's not happy about, freezing transactions from Russia's central bank, and blocking the use of the American dollar, among many others. Yeah, it impacts everyone, not just Russia. But it is such an interesting stand to take against Mm -hmm. war. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm kind of amazed by all of this. Me too. Me too. And you're right. Like when, let's say, the states implements these sanctions on Russia, it's not like the states just comes out on top. It can this can negatively impact almost every country's economy, and it likely will. Mm There have also been airspace bans on Russian aircrafts in Canadian, U.S., and EU airspace. And United Airlines, Delta Airlines, American Airlines, and UPS have suspended flying over Russian airspace. So all these, I saw this map today of all the different new flight routes that flights are having to take because they can't go through Russian airspace. It's really interesting. Many large corporations have been jumping on the sanction bandwagon as well. So Apple, for example, has halted all product sales and limited the use of Apple Pay and Apple Maps in Russia. And think about if Google Maps stopped being available to me, (laughs) I would be lost all the time. Yeah. Like those are things that can really impact. Or, for example, I almost never carry my physical card anymore. I use my tab, my Apple Pay. Mm -hmm. Those things can hugely impact citizens. Did you hear, this is more in Ukraine, but the road signs and stuff, Ukrainians either took them down or like switched them up so that Russians can't get get confused when they were in Ukraine. That Um, is brilliant. I didn't hear that, but that's very smart. And what's so interesting, like you said, Becca, about these sanctions is that they're highly coordinated between all of these countries. And so the impact on Russia's economy is already being seen. It's been quite powerful. So the value of the ruble, Russia's currency, fell to a record low of less than one cent American. 
which represents a loss of 30% of its value against the U.S. dollar. And if this economic trend continues, the low value of the ruble will contribute to inflation, making the cost of goods, including food, more expensive for Russian citizens. The rise of economic sanctions as a tool of war can be traced back to World War I, when the inter-allied blockade, coordinated by Britain, France, and the United States, aimed to confiscate German goods on the high seas to disrupt Germany's economy and undermine German resilience in World War I. So it sounds very similar to kind of what's going on here. Yeah. And so while there have been some historical successes with sanctions and what already appears to be an early success, sort of, against Russia, sanctions don't always work exactly the, the way that they're intended. So when sanctions are implemented, the goal of the greater good should be kept in mind. And so sanction regimes should be used in a way that spares the general population as much as possible. And so there are certain items that are typically not directly impacted by sanctions, including medical and disaster relief supplies and, of course, food. But even though food is often not directly impacted by sanctions, economic sanctions have been shown to cause negative fallout beyond their intended measures, including inflated food prices and increases in food insecurity. Yeah, of course. Like, I even think, didn't Canada stop? buying Russian oil. Uh, yeah, gas prices so, went up to 175. I know, it's wild. Uh, <laughs> but I even think about that in like the industry, like the oil industry in Russia now is definitely mm -hmm. impacted. I'm wondering if people are being let go. I, who knows what's happening in Russia yeah, right now? Yeah, who knows? But all of these different sanctions definitely impact many different layers. Yes. Also, like you mentioned, like the goal of the greater good. And mm -hmm. in this case, the goal of the greater good is to prevent a world war. Yeah. It's to prevent World War III. So I would say that a lot of these sanctions have come and they have come really quickly mm -hmm. because they're trying to make a really fast and hard impact yeah. to try to get Russia to stop. That's a really good point. Okay, so one example of negative consequences of sanctions is the U.S. sanctions against Iran. Mm. The U.S. has imposed various sanctions against Iran since 1979, and this has led to a variety of negative impacts on Iran's economy. But one of the greatest interests to us on this podcast is that the sanctions eventually caused unprecedented inflation in Iran's food markets. So from a nutrition perspective, this has increased the prevalence of food insecurity, and made it significantly more difficult for the people of Iran to afford a healthy diet. Long term, there could be significant downstream effects of these sanctions, including possibly a population that's more vulnerable to chronic disease. In regards to the sanctions on Russia and the ongoing events and how they could possibly impact food, there are already predictions of a global fertilizer shortage, which could, of course, impact growing, the growing of food. So while sanctions may seem like a peaceful or less violent way to stop conflict and encourage peace, they can be very powerful and devastating. And with that, I'm going to toss it to Becca for a story that I know will emotionally destroy me, but I am so interested to learn about. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. That was really informative. And you're right. Like, I feel like not many people know about sanctions or knew about sanctions before... Mm -hmm the most recent events. And like, it is good to keep those long-term consequences and stuff in mind. And I think that that's why these sanctions do pose such a threat 
But it's possible that like countries like Russia aren't thinking about the long-term effects right now, yeah. which is unfortunate. But yeah, that was really informative. Thank you. No problem. Okay. So some of the sources that I used for my part include history.com, Britannica, and many, many animated YouTube videos. I know we've talked about this before, but history is one of those things that I didn't try to learn as a kid. (laughs) And I actually still find it kind of difficult to get a really good grasp on historic events. And so when I was reading articles, I was kind of going off on all of these like tangents and rabbit holes trying to fully understand like what is communism, what is socialism, all of these different definitions. And so I actually will link some of the YouTube videos that I watched in our references, which will be on our website at unsavory.com. But I highly recommend the animated ones that like show you the moving photos (laughs) with the audio because it's really good at getting a grasp of what happened. (laughs) I will definitely watch them. Okay, so the history of Ukraine and Ukraine's relationship with Russia is extremely deep-rooted and complicated. So apologies in advance if anything seems oversimplified, But I really wanted to be able to fit this in an hour-long episode and also kind of stick to some main points just so that it's easier to understand because there's so much there. Uh, And I do want to disclose that I do have a personal connection to the current events in Ukraine since I have extended family there and some friends there as well. And I also have a very Ukrainian mother. She's (laughs) not from Ukraine, but her grandparents and great-grandparents and stuff were. But I've also been to Ukraine. I've been to Ukrainian school. I did Ukrainian dancing all throughout my childhood and teenage years. And I also grew up eating cabbage rolls and borscht and pedahe, which is pierogies in the Ukrainian pronunciation. (laughs) And so I did try to keep my research and reporting as unbiased as possible. But I figured I should disclose this in case I do get heated at any point. Thank you for disclosing that. Um, I love cabbage rolls. I love pierogies, and I've never heard them pronounced that way. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into it. So Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe by area, falling significantly behind Russia, the largest country in Europe and in the world. So Ukraine has seven land borders. So it's touching Russia, obviously, as well as Belarus, Hungary, Moldova, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia. The word Ukraina, which is Ukraine in Ukrainian, quite literally means the borderlands. And this is really important to its history for reasons that we will soon get into. A lot of us likely know what the Ukrainian flag looks like after the past week and a half. So it's divided into two colors. So there's blue on the top and yellow on the bottom. But a lot of people might not know what these colors represent. Sarah, do you want to take a (laughs) a guess? (laughs) So I kind of know, but I didn't. So Becca like blacked out this part (laughs) in the script and was like, don't look at it. But I've been listening to podcasts about Ukraine all week. And so I I think it means the blue sky. It represents the blue sky and then the farmland, like the wheat. Exactly. So yeah, the, the blue on top is the sky. And then some people also say it could represent the Black Sea. But Mm. I think the more common one is the sky. And the yellow portion on the bottom is representative of Ukraine's like wheat wheat harvest because they have a very large wheat harvest. So yeah, they, they produce like a tremendous amount of wheat as well as corn, sunflower, and soybeans. So the reason for this is that one, they have a lot of land dedicated to crops. 
The area of land cultivated every year is larger than the surface area of Italy. And two, their soil is extremely fertile, like super duper fertile. So it's called black earth or black soil for its like putty-like appearance. And this soil is so coveted that there have been like literal black markets dedicated to its sale. And um, one of the main reasons Ukrainian land is so desirable is because of the soil. I had no idea that Ukraine was so fertile. Yes, extremely fertile, which is, again, why it's so desirable. And then another reason it's so desirable to other countries and why it has been like attacked and tried to be absorbed and stuff like that so much is because of its like surrounding water and like the, its ability to have ports and import and export goods. That makes sense. So Ukraine is able to supply a lot of food to their people, but also throughout Europe and globally. They're one of the top three exporters of grain worldwide. And it's often said that Ukraine could feed the whole world if it needed to. How does such an agricultural powerhouse of a country experience a famine that kills millions of its people? Mm -hmm. The biggest catalyst for the Holodomor famine, as well as the tensions between Russia and Ukraine, began during the years where the Soviet Union was in full force. Well, I mean, it, the tensions started like even way before this, but that's kind of where we're going to start our history lesson for the day. For the sake of keeping this episode to a a listenable length. <laughs> we'll exactly. Start there. And as I said, like I'll post some resources like YouTube videos and stuff like that, that I found very consumable that kind of explain things going even further back. But in the context of talking about Holodomor and stuff, it's, this is kind of like the important part in terms of where we should start. Okay. So before the Soviet Union, aka the USSR, a.k.a. the United Socialist Soviet Republic, Russia was ruled by the Romanov dynasty. Nicholas Romanov II was the last Russian empire. He was crowned in 1896 after his father, Alexander III, passed away. And this was when he was only 28 years old, so he was super young. And I looked up the life expectancy, and it was only like 40. Oh, my goodness. Something then. Um, but he was still considered a very young empire. So I feel like when people were in power, they were like reaching the end of their life, it seemed. Yeah. 28 is too young to rule a country. I'll just say Definitely. It. <laughs> it is. And and he proved that. So apparently he wasn't a great leader. Uh, he was super young and he wasn't well trained. So Russian civilians were also desperate for change. They, they wanted more of a communist collective state, whereas Nicholas II was trying to preserve his family's monarchy and refused to give up any of his power. And he, his like the monarchy, it went back centuries. So his like family had been in power for a very long time. Yeah, so he was probably pretty comfortable in that uh, position. Have you seen The Great? It's on Prime. I have not, no. Okay, that's what I'm picturing when you're describing this. I think it's really funny. But it's the story basically of Catherine the Great, who was the longest female in power in Russia's history. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. Like, it's a really funny show. And the costumes are amazing. And the set's amazing. Like, it's definitely worth a watch. But her husband is this young guy who's like super not fit to rule and is only interested in himself, basically. <laughs> Definitely oh. not the greater good. And then Catherine the Great is like, I'm going to make Russia a new cultural, like great place to grow up and focus on women's rights and things like that. And that's what I'm picturing when I picture Nicholas Romanov II. You're Her picturing the, the, other, the guy. The husband who's like <laughs> too young saying? and was just born into it and is like, 
I can do whatever I want. Basically. I actually, I wonder, are they, they're related? You said? Yeah. Are I they looked related? it up. So Catherine the Great and her husband, who I can't even remember his name, had a baby named Paul. And okay. then Paul had like, there's three generations beneath him. And Nicholas Romanov was oh. one of them. Oh, Interesting. Uh, so this family, the Romanov family, apparently also has ties to like the current queen oh, of England. It's all the way to the top. Too. Like it's really interesting, all of this history. And there's there are still a few Romanovs like alive, but I don't think any of them live in Russia for reasons that are obvious and will be obvious to you in a matter of minutes. <laughs> So in 1917, a Russian revolution began where a lawyer named Vladimir Lenin launched an uprising against the autocracy or autocratic government and called for a Soviet government consisting of everyday people like peasants, workers, and soldiers. So the word Soviet in Russian quite literally means workers' union or council. Okay. And the word autocratic <laughs> Just to clarify. <laughs> so autocratic, this is one of those words that I had to look up too. <laughs> uh, there's so many. But yeah, an autocracy is basically when there's like one person that's in power over mm, like a okay. body of people. Okay. And yeah, so it's like the opposite of something like communism. Gotcha. And would yeah. it be parallel to something like a dictatorship? Yeah, it could be similar to a dictatorship. Okay. I think. Although I, this is probably going to make me sound pretty stupid and I, it's fine. But all the words that describe different types of governments or like formations of society, I've always gotten so confused. Yep. I have like a general sense of what communism is because yeah, it's like in the name. Obviously. That one I get. Yeah, common. <laughs> yeah. But I also had to like look it up multiple times because I was like, is socialism communism? Right. Um, if somebody thinks that there should be a democracy, is that communism? I, there was just like Okay, so yeah, many now I'm confused questions again. <laughs> that came to mind. And yeah. then new words were coming up in these definitions. And I was, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I'm already it confused again. And communism, too. I'm sorry if you're like a political science major and you're listening to this. Yeah. But communism, I'm always like, hey, that sounds pretty nice. And then it often doesn't turn out so nice. Yep. And I this know you're going to get into that. true in <laughs> most cases. So immediately following the revolution, so the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War began. And this is where things continue to be confusing. <laughs> Since there was a network of changing alliances between regions like Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, Georgia, Latvia, Finland. But basically, you have the communists who want common ownership of property and the absence of social classes versus the monarchists who want a ruler who acts as the head of the state and makes the decisions. Hmm. During this war, tensions rose between the communist people in Russia and the Romanov royal family, so the mo monarchs. Despite the fact that Nicholas II had been thrown out of his position during the revolution. So he actually had, there's somebody else in power at that point. Okay. In February of 1918, the whole royal family was executed by a firing squad, including Nicholas, his wife, his five children, and many of the members of their entourage. Wow. Even at this time, like most people considered this massacre excessively brutal, but also unnecessary. But then others did justify it as a necessary action for change, like in order for the region to move forward. But why if they weren't in power? Like, do they still have influence, I guess? 
Yeah. And I don't think that they like went quietly. Okay. Like I think that that monarch influence, like the the royal influence would still be there and likely he has some say in getting back into power. Right. And is it known who executed them? There are theories. Some people actually think that it may have been Lenin's people. Ooh, okay. Who I mentioned briefly, and we'll talk about him a little bit more too, but um, I don't think we're fully sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. Also, have you seen the movie Anastasia? Yes, I used to love Anastasia. Yeah, that's a good movie. Uh, So I used to watch it a ton as a kid. (laughs) Um, I had it on VHS, but it's kind of messed up when you consider the premise of this movie. So it's actually based on conspiracy theories that Anastasia, who was the Romanov's youngest daughter, was able to escape the massacre and was hiding out on her own in Russia. Because you'll remember, she's in Russia and she makes friends with like these mobsters and stuff like that. And she kind of just like makes oh her way God. through through Russia. Like that's the premise. But it's, it's wild that they made it into a kid's I, movie. I like barely remember it. I just know I used to like it. It was good. Anyways, over the years, a lot of women came forward pretending to be Anastasia in real life. But of course, this whole conspiracy was later disproven in 1991 when forensic researchers found some of the remains of the family and when the DNA from the most convincing fake Anastasia didn't match up with any of the family's DNA. So during the uh, Civil War, Ukraine did try to gain independence and they actually call part of the war, um, like the Civil War, the Ukrainian War for Independence. But as I mentioned, Ukraine is super coveted for its land and resources. So a lot of other regions continue to try to absorb it. So over a few years, there's kind of like this struggle back and forth between them achieving independence and then it was taken away. Ultimately, they did not get this independence for very long. And in 1922, they became one of the original republics of the Soviet Union. So still not a country. So this is, I think, important to keep in mind. And it is a little bit confusing because a lot of these republics or regions like Ukraine, they're not considered countries yet because a country has full independence and its own government. Right. Okay. So they were still being ruled by the Russian government? Before becoming part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, this is where it's like a little bit confusing because they were under Russian rule for a while, but Mm -hmm. Russia also isn't a country at this point in time. So they're under like a similar ruling and there's a lot of Russian influence, um, especially on like the eastern side of Ukraine because closer to Russia. Mm-hmm. And when there wasn't Russian influence, there was they were trying to have Russian influence over Ukraine. Okay. So there's like always this kind of like combat back and forth. But this was before both of these countries were countries. And this is why they were kind of morphed into the Soviet Union. Right. Okay. Because they didn't have their own governing bodies. So they became one with a bunch of other countries and then had their own government within the Soviet Union. Wow. That's wild. Anyways, yeah, there's so much conflict, so many wars and revolutions happening at this time. So I really did cut it down to spark notes here. But as I said, if you are interested in learning more about the Ukrainian-Russian war in history, I will post those resources I used on from YouTube in our resources section. Okay, so Soviet Union or USSR was formed shortly after the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War. 
So Vladimir Lenin, who I mentioned, had started this communist uprising. He overthrew the Russian leader, Alexander Kerensky, who took over from the Romanovs. So remember how I said that he was kind of thrown out? Yes. So this guy took over. Okay. And he was trying to move Russia away from being an autocracy, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't really doing a very good job. So he was like super consumed by World War I, and he kept Russian troops fighting despite a lot of the country opposing to it. So Vladimir Lenin kind of swooped in and Kerensky was exiled. After the takeover, Russia then became a socialist republic and Lenin was selected to be its leader. Lenin then got them out of World War I by signing a peace treaty. And fun fact, I don't know if you've ever heard the term Leninism before. No, I haven't. Had you? Okay. No. So Leninism is actually often used synonymously with Marxism. So like Karl Marx, who I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've heard of from like all the philosophy textbooks you've ever read. So people who believe these ideologies often believe in like a socialist democracy and the non-existence of social classes. So like Mm -hmm. communism, Um, but basically that like people should all work for a common good without a real hierarchy of class or ownership over property. Okay. Separate republics were formed and they were united to create the USSR, as I as I mentioned. And the USSR was in existence from 1922, which is where we're at right now, until mm-hmm. 1991. And it was made up of a total of 15 republics. And these included Armenia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, Ukraine, as well as a couple others. Okay. But yeah, is this making sense so far? I know it's a lot of information. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize and just let me know if if I'm on the right track. Okay. So Ukraine was just doing its thing, but it wasn't a country yet. Mm-hmm. Super fertile, producing a lot of food, trying to be independent. And then Russia was governed by a Romanov who ruled over everything. And then the Russian people were like, no, we're over this. Let's do something more like communism, like socialism. Mm -hmm. And then World War I ended, peace treaty was signed. (laughs) And at this point, Ukraine was absorbed into the USSR. Yeah, they were, it wasn't even like they were absorbed, but they were like part of the original USSR. Like they kind of came together with these other countries and became the USSR. Which was one country. USSR was considered a country. Yeah, it was the world's largest country. The world's largest country. Okay. And then uh, Lenin. Yes. We've talked about in detail. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Lenin was the first leader of the Soviet Union, which called for full equality of the republics. Okay. But even once the Soviet Union was formed, Russians were still considered like the top dog. And Mm -hmm. the Soviet Congress, which was called the Supreme Soviet, was located in Moscow. So in Russia. Mm-hmm. So it's supposed to all countries are supposed to be equal, but Russia's like the biggest one. <laughs> so they were probably held the most power, had the largest they had population. the most influence. They yeah. had the most influence. And do we like Lenin? Like, is he I can't tell if he's a good guy and I should be like, yes, like he took over and he's trying to create unity or like, what's the what's the vibe check on Lenin? <laughs> what's the 411? Yeah. Uh, so it's a good question because I think. The answer is complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that Lenin's, his theories and his ideas for Russia were good. He thought they were very good. Mm -hmm. But he also did some pretty bad things. And I mentioned that he may have been behind the Romanov 
murders. Right. Um, yes. But he also had a tendency to have his people kill anyone who had opposing views. Oh, that's not good. Okay. Yeah, and I read somewhere, I don't know if how true this is, but I read somewhere that uh, there was a point where about like 20,000 people were being killed a month in the USSR uh, oh for having gosh. like opposing views. Um, wow. And okay. one article actually said that had Stalin not come into play, Lenin may have eventually become like Stalin. So he was on that path. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'll hold off before <laughs> I say positive <laughs> things about this guy. Yeah. And it's hard because I think a lot of people were down with what he stood for, but then those who At weren't. The start maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tricky situation. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but things get worse after Lenin dies in 1924. Uh, so prior to his death, Lenin tries to stop a young Georgian man by the name of Joseph Stalin from becoming his successor. Oh, my God. <laughs> this guy was like a revolutionist leader at the time, but he was a very bad seed. Uh, so mm -hmm. he was literally known as a criminal who had been tied to a bank robbery in Georgia, like his Before home. he was elected. He was Before already he a was criminal. Elected. Yeah. Okay, good start. And Lenin was quoted saying that Stalin has unlimited authority concent concentrated in his hands, and I am not sure whether he will always be capable of using that authority with sufficient caution. Well, so he knew he was right. dangerous. Yeah. But unfortunately, Lenin passed and Stalin takes over as the head of the USSR. And Stalin even plans Lenin's funeral and disregards his wishes by throwing a super lavish event and embalming his body and putting it on display. And these are all things that Lenin didn't want. That is so disrespectful. Yeah. Wow. It's rude. Um, so at this point... There's a significant change in how things are handled. So the USSR transitioned to this totalitarian one-party government where opposition parties or ideologies weren't welcome. So, like, they weren't really welcome before, but now it was even worse. And this is definitely not what a lot of the revolutionaries had in mind when fighting for this socialist communist change. Um, and I feel like in theory, sometimes communism, like, it sounds okay, like a classless society, like we're all equals yes. and we have a common good. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned before, like in reality, it can sometimes lead to like political and cultural repression as well as the restriction of human rights. Yeah, for sure. It kind of like um, reminds, like it sounds nice, right? When you read it mm -hmm. on paper, you're like, oh, that sounds kind of nice. Everyone's equal. We all work together, greater good. But it's like a commune in the middle of nowhere that ends up just like actually becoming a cult eventually because that's how yeah. people are. Humans interact and their relationships are complicated. It's kind of like that, but on a big scale. Yeah, it's a bit a bit culty. So many people tried to like fight back when Stalin first had power, but Soviet secret police forces were created and they arrested or executed anti-revolutionaries. The gulags were established as well, which were these concentration camps where people were kept and worked to death a lot of the time. Oh so it, it was really, really bad. 
Wow. Yeah. And um, Stalin wanted to make the Soviet Union into more of an industrial powerhouse. So um, in 1928, he introduced this five-year plan that included the collectivization of farms, which was masked as this policy that intended to unify privately owned farms. But in reality, what it meant was that farmers would give their land to the state and work together on like the largest Mm -hmm. farms to produce larger and more efficient yields. And they would do that to then feed the growing number of industrial workers throughout the Soviet Union. So the crops would be then like given to the government at prices like lower than the standard. Mm -hmm. And this would clearly create more product for less money, but also limit the success of any individual farm farmer or family. So kind of like pushing that communist ideal of like eliminating those class structures. Yeah. And that's one thing you don't think about when you think about communism as being like a nice place. Totally. And what if you what if you had a thriving farm? You know what I mean? What if you had this beautiful farm that had been in your families for centuries, like for so long Mm -hmm. and you're making lots of money and then this kind of collectivization gets put in place and you you're not profitable anymore you're making exactly as much as everyone else you know what yeah. this is reminding me of what the maple syrup episode a little really bit. like not- how you couldn't sell above and beyond certain quotas so if you were not making good money before now it's good for you but if you were making great money before it's not so good for you yeah i know you're right like i guess if if there were farmers who were really struggling this type of thing at first might actually feel like like it's unifying like the farms and um, maybe they are benefiting from it more and their families are benefiting from it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also remember that Ukraine is a hub of natural resources and Mm -hmm. it is even called like the breadbasket of Europe because of its fertile soil, productive crops and exports. Yeah. And before this period of time, like farmland was mainly independently owned. So a lot of Ukrainian farm owners end up like refusing to give their land to the state. Maybe it's like mm. those more productive farms. But again, like this this was their livelihood. And oftentimes properties were passed down from like generations and generations of family members. And Ukraine really did then become like a threat to Stalin's evil plan. And over the next four years, their land was confiscated from them. And like any resistant Ukrainians were either murdered, sent into exile, or physically forced onto these collective farms. Wow. That's awful. So uh, with this new collectivization policy, the farms would give the state all of their harvest and wait for some of it to be redistributed back to them, or they'd allow them to keep like small amounts for their workers and their families. But slowly and surely, harvest quotas increased and Stalin started to keep more of the rations intended for the people. Mm -hmm. By 1932, the quotas became almost impossible to meet and even less was saved for Ukrainian families, uh, with most of the food being redistributed to other parts of the Soviet Union, or so they thought. Wow. So basically, Ukrainian farmers had their land taken from them they were forced to work on these farms, but just giving all of the product to Stalin and the Soviet Union. 
and then getting some back, but then eventually they'd get less and less and less back and it wasn't enough for them to eat and feed their families. Yeah, and a lot of the Ukrainians didn't take well to this. So there was like a lot of unrest, Mm -hmm. obviously, during this period of time as well from people trying to fight back. But they're so much smaller than the rest of the Soviet Union. And Stalin essentially had his words in everyone else's ears, right? Wow. And the Soviet Union used their, like, grain procurement plan to cover up the beginning of a mass genocide and their attempt to take over Ukraine. I should mention that the bordering part of Russia, as well as uh, Kazakhstan, were impacted by this famine, too, and pretty severely, but still not as bad as Ukraine. And I did read somewhere that the causes of the famine in Kazakhstan weren't as clear-cut, like, why... Mm. It started in Kazakhstan. Like, I think that they also had really good soil and stuff, but I don't think that it it's as obvious as to why they suffered as well. Hmm. So violence in these areas became legalized and a part of everyday life should a farm fail to meet its quotas or a family try to hide food. And hiding leftover crops underground became a pretty common thing. But soldiers would go around with long sticks poking the ground to try to find them. And all of the large stores of wheat and other grains were kept in warehouses with armed guards who had instructions to shoot any thieves. A.K.A. starving citizens just trying to feed their families. I just can't imagine working around food all day and having to steal some and literally bury it in the ground. I know. It's awful. And then someone finds, like, they're going around with sticks, poking around the ground trying to find them. Like, can't they see how desperate people are to eat? I know. And, like, the propaganda at this time, too, for people who thought that they were doing the right thing Mm -hmm. by starving Ukraine. I don't know how, but the propaganda must have been next level. Yeah. And actually, like, just quickly on that note, that's part of why it's... It's so hard to be on social media during times like this when there's huge unrest in the world and, you know, an invasion taking place. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can see so many of those human stories. I know. It is really hard. And by no means do I think Russian citizens are being morphed into this. I think it's Mm -hmm. very obvious that it's Putin. Again, he's the Stalin of today. So basically... I think most people know that. Mm-hmm. Seems like it. I don't know. I yeah. think so. Because as somebody who has like roots in Ukraine, I don't yeah. necessarily blame Russian people. I don't feel anger towards them. I actually feel sadness and like empathy. Yeah, I agree. I don't think this is the, the best decision for anyone. And I don't feel that anyone wants this. It's horrible. Agreed. All right. And back to another horrible thing. Another tragedy. <laughs> so at this time, the Soviet Union made it impossible for Ukrainians to escape this horrific treatment. They banned travel and took away any items that could be exchanged for food on like these little like black markets and things like that. Mm. And this usually left people with nothing but the clothes on their backs. So over 22 million people were like physically stuck in this Holodomor like nightmare. Like they couldn't get out of it. People became so hungry that they dug up and ate previously buried livestock They would eat things like grass and tree bark and like wild birds and worms. The most tragic and disturbing thing that these people turned to for nourishment 
was cannibalism. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's estimated that people can live without food for about 8 to 21 days, depending on the person, and up to two months if they remain well hydrated. But effects like delirium start much sooner. And I think about when I'm hungry, and I I can barely go a few hours without feeling Mm -hmm. super irritable. So I can't even imagine yeah. What it must have been like. I know. Sometimes I sort of I joke about being hangry when I miss a snack or like a meal is later than expected, but like being hangry isn't a joke. It's one of our it means one of our basic physiological needs needs to be met. Mm-hmm. And like if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. That pyramid that basically describes what motivates humans and like food is at the bottom. So if that need isn't met, if you don't have food, Things like our emotions and our cognitive function, those things don't function if our basic needs aren't met. Yeah. And like I I heard recently the story of a, a man who survived in the desert and he was doing things like ripping the heads off bats and like drinking their guts and things like that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just a nice tangent. But when I listen to that, I'm like, I physically don't know if I could ever do that, eat something like that, eat alive anything. Mm-hmm. But I think when you're in a state of such extreme hunger, your body drives you more than your mind. Absolutely. Like, I think I think a lot of your conscious thinking kind of goes out the window at that point. Yeah. And like the unconscious takes over because your needs are not being met. Like those things that like the, the basic needs are not being met. Mm-hmm. So you can't exactly. use your like thought processes to make decisions because your body is literally making them for you. Yes. Um, and it is the case of what what happened here. So like people started kind of like experiencing like delirium and some resorted to like murder while others also like lived off the remains of those who had already perished. Oh. Like in one instance, like a, a mother in one of the villages, she like apparently killed her own child after months of starvation and like I can't even imagine living with the moral and social consequences of doing something like that because I'm almost 100% sure she didn't mean to do that totally she wasn't thinking she wasn't able to think it was probably just instinct and primal drive for food but like once she got nourishment again I can't even imagine the pain of that realization wow Okay. It's so tragic. It's really upsetting. It's devastating. Mm -hmm. So this famine went on for over a year and it became like so normal to see bodies on the streets or like in wheelbarrows to be brought to cemeteries that like people didn't even flinch when they saw them. And this famine, it's like, it's such a freaking dark part of human history. And it is so shocking that it's not really that well known. Mm -hmm. But yeah, overall, like, It killed between 3.5 and 12 million people, mostly Ukrainians. And it decreased the Ukrainian population by about 15%. And there's so many inconsistencies in these numbers since deaths were either not documented or Mm -hmm. they were documented incorrectly. So they would put the cause of death as something like typhoid or old age and not hunger or like starvation. Totally. Wow. And like, guess what? typhoid hits you harder if you're starving. Everything does. And I think the worst part is that their food was there. They were producing food. It wasn't a famine, really. Like, it wasn't a natural famine. It's not like there was a drought that made that there was no food available, right? It was Mm -hmm. a man-made famine. 
It was murder. It was murder. Genocide. Oh, it's so awful. Yeah. So what finally stopped it? Okay, so this is what's kind of strange because none of the sources that I read, listened to, or watched like really discussed like how the famine ended in much detail. But it sounds like it was kind of this combination of resistance from the people and the fact that like Stalin's five-year plan that included the collectivization plan, Mm -hmm. that it had been carried out. Interesting. This is dark, but you need people to be able to work the farms. Yeah. And yeah. And if you're losing people, Mm -hmm. you don't have enough to maintain those. numbers. And his whole plan was industrialization. And Mm -hmm. you're not going to industrialize a nation by killing like large percentages of the people who are are putting in the work. Right. This is a terrible story. Bad plan. Very, very, very bad plan. (laughs) Yes. So what's almost more upsetting is that the Soviet Union actually denied this famine, claiming that there was nothing deliberate about it. But again, like how do you starve a nation that can feed the world? Mm -hmm. And in doing this research, I kept kind of wondering what they actually did did with all of this food because right. there's no way that the Soviet Union can consume like millions upon millions of tons of food. Turns out that they didn't actually consume all of this food. So confidential Russian state documents were leaked later on claiming that the Soviet Union was exporting a lot of this food and using the funds to increase this industrialization strategy. So countries like England, Germany, Poland, Holland, and Denmark were all documented to have accepted exports from the USSR during this time period. Hmm. And it really makes me wonder how much these countries knew about the genocide. Like, were they naive or were they complicit? And then Holodomor wasn't acknowledged worldwide as a genocide against Ukrainians until the early 2000s. I'm sorry, not until the 2000s? No. Not until the 2000s. Um, And there's actually still countries that don't acknowledge it as a genocide to this day. Actually, most don't acknowledge it. Uh, So over like the past 20 years or so, I think there's about 16 or so uh, UN countries, as well as the Vatican City, that have recognized it for what it was. This includes Canada and the US, as well as countries Mm. like Poland, Latvia, and others around the world. But not everyone does. Wow. I'm glad Canada does. Me as well. So following Holodomor, the friction between Ukraine and Russia didn't end, unfortunately. In 1991, the USSR dissolved after its economy and military weakened, and its president resigned. Ukraine finally received independence and was considered its own country, finally. But many say that Russia never actually got over Ukraine's independence Because they tried to absorb them in the First World War, as you might remember, as well Mm -hmm. as many times after that. And it's the same reason that they're currently invading Ukraine today. And while tensions have been high between the two countries since before they were even countries, the 2014 occupation of the Crimean Peninsula was really one of the major catalysts for the ongoing Russian war on Ukraine. So... Russia took over the North Ukrainian peninsula that is surrounded by the Black Sea. And they did this basically to protect their own ports and economy. But they did it under Putin's orders, and it was therefore violent and illegal. And of course, there's so much more history here, but it would be impossible for us to cover it all here. 
But with that, that is the story of Holodomor, the devastating man-made famine that killed millions of people in Ukraine, but also Kazakhstan and northern Russia. Wow. That was eye-opening, to say the least. Thank you so much for covering that. Of course. I feel, although it was a tragic story, I feel good about covering it. It's one of those things that I feel like more people should know about, and we should understand the history of what's going on today. Totally. I think bringing it back to food, it's no secret that there's usually, you know, where conflict is, there's problems with food security. And we've already seen things like displaced refugees, destroyed land, supply chain interruptions, inflation. But I guess like what surprised me the most about this episode beyond the horrible story is that Ukraine is this super productive agricultural nation with prime land that produces so much of the world's weeds and other crops. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it's the unfortunate reality that people in Ukraine, but also like around the globe will suffer from this war. Um, Like both Ukraine and Russia export like a ton of food. And like you can already see things like, uh, like our oil prices skyrocketing, uh, which will ultimately affect food costs because transportation costs are going up. Mm -hmm. And it's countries Um, I know Ukraine and Russia export to countries that are already experiencing a certain level of food insecurity, and those countries will likely be even more impacted by these food shortages Mm -hmm. and inflation. Yeah, it's sad stuff. Anyways, I figured it might be nice to end this episode with a few things that we can do to help. I've been seeing like a lot of organizations and individuals that are helping by sending aid or even just by sharing credible information on their social platforms, which is amazing to see. But you can make a donation to an organization that you trust, either monetary. So I know places like Airbnb are actually helping out like thousands of refugees and homes across Europe right now. But then there's also organizations that are collecting new items such as medical supplies to to send over. So you can just kind of find local organizations like that in your area if that's the way you want to help out. You can also donate used items to like local refugee organizations. So over a million people have already left Ukraine to those like surrounding countries. But it's likely only a matter of time before refugees start coming to Canada and the U.S. So things like Mm -hmm. clothing, household or kitchen items could potentially be life-changing for people who had to leave all of their belongings behind. And I actually just did a clearing out of my kitchen to get some stuff to donate. Mm -hmm. You've inspired me to do one too. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go through my closets. I need to anyways. (laughs) I know. When we were in school, I don't think I went through my closet at all. So it's been about four years, so I could probably... Oh, yeah. Do a good purge. Do some clearing, too. Mm -hmm. So thirdly, uh, if you do have an extra room or extra space in your home, you could even consider signing up to house a refugee or refugee family, which I thought was Mm. a really nice idea. I was going to see if if I could find the link to like major cities and stuff in, in Canada. So maybe I'll look more into that and put some stuff on our Instagram maybe later in the week. Yeah. But I do know that like places, cities and stuff in Manitoba right now are taking just names down of people who are willing to help. But if you have the space and space in your heart, that's an amazing Mm -hmm. thing to do. And hey, maybe they can make you some awesome cabbage rolls. And (laughs) how did you say pierogies again? Pereje. Pereje. Okay. And lastly, you can share information about the current situation and how others can help. It seems so easy, so simple. 
but it can just make all the difference to share this information and get other people to either care or to help. It's Mm -hmm. such a dire situation right now, and it needs all the help that it can get. Yes. Those are all such great tips. I hope everyone learned something new in this episode. I... I know I sure did. And I think this is actually the most I've learned from one single episode. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. We'd like to dedicate this episode to my Baba, Sophie Piroshi, who passed away shortly after recording this episode. Her grandparents immigrated to Canada from Shubrika, Ukraine in the late 1800s. And yeah, this was tough. It was a tough week. But stay safe, everyone, and Slava Ukraina. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unsavory. You can find all the references and materials used to put this episode together in our show notes at unsavorypodcast.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, follow, and share our show with your true crime and food-loving friends. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can sign up as a donor through our Patreon link in our bio. To keep up to date with the podcast, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Unsavory Podcast. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at unsavorypod at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.